Hey guys, I'm Chastity, and you're listening to the Ancient Conspiracies Podcast, where we connect the origins of some of the most popular conspiracy theories to biblical history. Well, today we're going to pick up right where we left off last week. If you missed last week's episode, you may want to go back and listen because it lays a foundation for the information that we're going to continue today. And just like last week, this information is going to be equally as intense. I'm trying to lay a foundation of information in the smoothest way possible because all of this connects to end times prophecy, which we're slowly inching our way towards. So last week, we concluded with the concept that the giants eventually became fewer and fewer as mankind moved across the globe and basically wiped them out. But their genetics never quite went away. If you remember, they intermingled with mankind, and therefore, the monstrous gigantic beings may have been killed off, but their bloodlines carried on. And over time, the giants took on a more human-like appearance, and therefore, it became vital that they traced the pedigree of their genealogies. And the purer the bloodline, the higher they were elevated in society, the purest of which became the kings of every major dynasty on earth. And that's why most royalty claimed to be the descendants, or in some cases, the physical embodiment of the gods. Now, most of the royal bloodlines today can be traced back to the French Merovingian dynasty. Now, this is going to be some heavy information, but if you'll stick with me, there's a reason I'm sharing it, and it will become clear in just a minute. So, the Merovingians are believed to have been the most noble of the bloodlines during their period of history. And the Merovingians traced their origins back to Arcadia. And Arcadia was in ancient Greece in the Peloponnesian Mountains. If you remember, this is where the Danite tribe is believed to have migrated, who then became known as the Spartans. And Dan became the Greek god Pan. And exactly as the story of the ancient Scythian giants, who we connected last week to Dan, the ancient Merovingians are believed to have also migrated up the Danube River and intermarried with the German people along the way. If you remember, the Danites were given the emblem of a serpent by Moses, and the first king of the Merovingian dynasty was King Merovius, which is where the dynasty derives its name. Now, there's not a lot actually known about his life, but an early myth claims that he was the offspring of a sea serpent. Mer in French means sea, and it's where we derive our term mermaid or merman. So as you can see, the origins of the Merovingian dynasty go all the way back to the demigods of old, those old serpent and dragon gods, which we've connected in previous episodes to the fallen Seraph. And if their origins connecting to a sea serpent wasn't interesting enough, the last king to rule the Merovingian dynasty was named Dagobert. Dago being an abbreviation of Dagon and bear being rooted in a word meaning priest or pharaoh. So Dagobert literally means priest or pharaoh of Dagon. And if you remember from previous episodes, Dagon was the Syrian bull god who had 70 sons that we theorized to be more like followers than actual physical offspring. And here we see exactly that. 
King Dagobert was literally named as the religious leader of the fallen angel religion. And interestingly, there are also documents where Dagobert's name is translated Dragobert, connecting him to the dragon. And even more incredible than that, the Bible also talks of an ancient sea serpent that is also a dragon, Leviathan. Now, this becomes important because it shows that the ancient Merovingians connect their bloodline literally from beginning to end back to the ancient serpent and dragon gods, the fallen seraphim. And here's something we haven't mentioned before, but I think it's a great place to introduce it. The ancient kingdom of Nimrod, who coincidentally was also considered the religious leader of the fallen angel religion, was symbolized by an eye. Now, some say that this all-seeing eye connects to the eye of Horus in Egyptian mythology, which I'll explain in just a second. But I wonder if it has something to do with the fallen angels being originally from a sect of angels called the Watchers, similar to our concept of guardian angels. The book of Enoch claimed that the main purpose of these angels was to watch over mankind. And then a small fraction of these watchers become overcome with lust for the women of earth and descend to earth to mate with them. Now, the Merovingians, like most every civilization on earth, believed that in their ancient history, their gods lived among man, exactly as we're told in the book of Enoch. The gods descended to earth, and this period of their rule has often been referred to as the Golden Age. The Egyptians called it the First time. And these gods were said to have watched over mankind directly during this period. They were often called the shepherd kings. And one of the symbols of their reign was an eye hovering over a throne. So Dagobert eventually dies, and I couldn't find a definitive explanation for how, just that he's believed to have been reincarnated through his son, Dagobert II. Now, you see the story of reincarnation across civilizations. And in the Canaanite version, when Nimrod dies, his wife, Semiramis, tells his kingdom that his spirit has taken possession of the sun. And she encouraged the people to pay homage to her husband by worshiping the sun. And this is the origin of sun worship. It was the continuation of the worship of Nimrod after death. And this is the exact same story of Baal and Ra and Zeus and Jupiter in Rome, all of which were really the same person known under different aliases in different cultures, and all of which were widely referred to as the sun god. Now, later on, Semiramis gives birth to a son, Tammuz, and in an attempt to hide her promiscuity, she claims to have been impregnated by the spirit of her dead husband, Nimrod, and therefore, Tammuz was promoted as the reincarnation of Nimrod, exactly as we see with the story of Dagobert. His son, Dagobert II, becomes his reincarnation. And when Tammuz gets older, he becomes an avid hunter. And although the account of this story in each civilization varies slightly, the central theme throughout all of them is that there's a hunting accident of some sort. In Canaanite tradition, Tammuz is gored by a wild boar and dies. 
This is also exactly what happens to Adonis, the son of Zeus, and also with Dagobert II. He was believed to have been murdered by being lanced through the eye by his own godson. And in Egyptian mythology, Horus also loses an eye, which is later magically restored and goes on to be the origins of the Eye of Horus, which came to symbolize the hidden knowledge of the gods. Now, this hunting accident and subsequent death of every single one of these sons happens on December 23rd. And this is right in the middle of the winter solstice, which is the shortest day of the year. In pagan cultures, it was believed that on this shortest day of the year, the sun actually died. And not only the physical sun in the sky, but the gods representing the sun. And the winter solstice also represented the rebirth of the sun. After the shortest day of the year, the days began to grow longer again. And this is why every pagan sun god of the ancient world was said to have been born or reborn on December 25th, Christmas. So now you can see some pagan influence connecting to the birth of Christ, but we're going to cover that in a couple months. So after the death of Dagobert II, the Merovingian dynasty fell into decline, even though they managed to hang on to much of their status for nearly a hundred more years. All subsequent Merovingian kings were essentially powerless, and they were thought to have died out with Dagobert's grandson, Clovis. Now, at the end of Clovis's reign, he converted to Orthodox Christianity as a move to gain support from the Catholic Church. And it's believed that there was a pact made between Clovis and the Vatican in which the Merovingian line would pledge their allegiance to the church in exchange for papal backing of their empire. And the title they wanted was Holy Roman Emperor. But this relationship eventually wore thin. The Merovingians tried to claim that they were the direct descendants of Jesus Christ through his relationship with Mary Magdalene, the exact conspiracy that's featured in modern-day movies like The Da Vinci Code. And this went against everything the church taught about Christ. And therefore, Dagobert became a threat to the church. So it's believed that the Roman Catholic Church conspired to have Dagobert killed on his hunting trip. Now, I said all of that because in each of the legends of these sons who were killed, it's widely believed that they will one day return again. And more importantly, their kingdoms will be restored in a, quote, new age, what we would refer to today as a new world order. And we may actually see this come to pass through the Merovingians. And I'm about to prove to you that the Merovingian bloodline never died, and it may actually actually continue to jockey for the throne of France to this very day. The Merovingian dynasty has a number of scions with other noble blood, and this is an occult term for grafting. As I said earlier, most of the royal bloodlines today can be traced back to the Merovingians, and one of these scions is exactly what we just mentioned. They falsely claim to be the descendants of Jesus Christ and Mary Magdalene. Now, Mary Magdalene was a descendant of the Benjamites, and they also connect to the Benjamites through other scions. And this connection to the Benjamites is an important one because Joshua gave Jerusalem to the Benjamites at the time 
time of the Exodus. So this gives them a future argument to state claim of Jerusalem in the end days. And we're told that the Antichrist will crown himself the king of Jerusalem, just like Baldwin, the first king of Jerusalem, did in 1118. And he was also a descendant of Dagobert. Now, although the visibility of these royal bloodlines has died out, their descendants continue to control the globe through their organizations, and they're mostly ranked within secret societies. For example, the upper half of the Rosicrucian order are considered blue bloods or pure bloods, but they actually rank lower on the end of the controlling bloodlines. Here are some of the names of these pure blood families. In France, they were called the Plantagenet, which stems from the Anjou bloodlines, who came from the last Merovingian king, Dagobert. Now, the Plantagenet bloodline produced King John of England, who signed the Magna Carta. Fun fact most of the U.S. presidents take their genealogy back to King John, including Barack Obama. Now, this was discovered by a 12 year old who traced the genealogy of all U.S. presidents as a science experiment back in 2012. And I'll link the article in the description of today's podcast for you to see this for yourself. In Germany and Austria, they were the Habsburg-Lorraine families. In Scotland, England, and Ireland, they were the Stuart families. And Stuart is known as the Unicorn Dynasty and actually has a unicorn right on their coat of arms. The unicorn references a pre-flood animal supposedly written by the Nephilim during battle. And this bloodline produced the kings and queens of England. It's also one of the most plausible bloodlines to potentially produce the Antichrist. If you haven't heard my very first headlines podcast called Long Live the King, I recommend you go back and listen to how King Charles connects to the possible predicted Antichrist. Now, in Spain, Bourbon is one of the most dominant royal bloodlines of the world, and they currently claim the title King of Jerusalem. Now, in Norse and Scandinavia, the St. Clair or Sinclair are the founding members of Freemasonry after the fall of the Templars. William the Conqueror takes his bloodline back to St. Clair and Odin from Norse traditions. Remember, Odin was Nimrod. Now, because these Rosicrucian bloodlines rank on the lower end of the controlling bloodlines, it's believed that the Rosicrucians report to the Committee of 300, also called the Olympians, which were founded by the British aristocracy in 1727. If you remember, the Olympians in Greek mythology were the demigod children of the first generation of titans or giants. Now, the Committee of 300 then reports to the Council of 33, which is the Supreme Council of the Scottish Rite, who then reports to the 13 families, which are apparently the 13 bloodlines that control the entire world. And these 13 Illuminati bloodlines are the families of Astor, Bundy, Collins, DuPont, Freeman, Kennedy, Lee, Onassis, Rockefeller, Russell, Van Duen, Merovingian, and Rothschild. Do any of those sound familiar? 
and these are the organizations that control the world. Now, the Rothschilds go on to become the banking arm of these bloodlines, and their original name was Bauer, which they changed to Rothschild in 1812 after setting up the London Bank. When America begins to rise in prominence, certain families were funded by the Rothschilds to become the elite in America and establish a banking arm outside of the Catholic Church. These were the Rockefellers, J.P. Morgan, etc., and this ensured the Rothschilds' control over the United States. And circling back around to Dagobert, that Roman Empire that the Merovingian kings were attempting to form with the Vatican may have come to fruition in modern day. During World War II and immediately afterwards, the Priory of Sion, a secret order dedicated to the Merovingian agenda, openly campaigned for a United States of Europe, and they even proposed a flag consisting of a circle of stars, which is identical to the flag used by the European Union today. The European Union may be the very modern-day Roman Empire whose emperor will one day rise from the ashes with the New World Order. So that's a lot of history, and I hope that it was easy enough to follow. The last thing I'll leave you with today is about actual bloodlines. And the actual blood marker that is theorized to be the correct pedigree of these ancient bloodlines is most likely RH negative or RH null. It's believed to be the rarest blood type in the world. And an article posted earlier this year in February 2022 called it golden blood, which I found interesting because it made me think of the golden age when the gods dwelt among man. The most concentrated group of people with RH negative blood comes from the Basques in southern France, again connecting to France where the Merovingians originated. The Basques are an ancient Aboriginal indigenous group located right in the heart of Europe. And if you remember, we said last week that the Basques have legends of giants in their history, specifically giants who they believed held secret ancient knowledge and wisdom unknown to the children of God, the Christians. And the Basques have the highest concentration of RH negative blood in the world. Now, there's only 15% of people in the entire world with RH negative blood, yet 35% of the Basque population has it. Now, there are four different blood types, O, A, B, and AB. And there are two different variants of these types measured by RH or rhesus. It's a measure of antigens in the blood, and 85% of the global population is RH positive and have no issues receiving blood from either positive or negative donors. But blood transfusions from an RH positive person to an RH negative person may be fatal. Their body will try to destroy the foreign antigens. In fact, women who are RH negative reproducing with an RH positive partner could prove fatal to the fetus. Her body could completely reject the pregnancy. Now, people with RH null or RH negative blood are also known for having lower than average blood pressure, lower than average pulse, and in some cases, they even have an extra vertebra in their back. 
An RH negative wasn't known to exist in the Americas, Southern Africa, or Asia until people started colonizing. And until that happened, RH negative seems to have been contained solely in Europe. There are even theories that RH negative people evolved from a separate species of being on the planet. I wonder who that could be. And the Basques themselves actually believe that they are the most pure of the bloodlines, Homo Atlantis. They claim to be the survivors after the flood, who settled in northwest Spain and southwest France, who started the civilizations of Egypt, Mesopotamia, and Scythia, Mesopotamia being the kingdom of Nimrod, and Scythia being the very location where the giants may have first reappeared after the flood. Well, that's where we're going to end today. Now, next week, we're going to dive a little deeper into secret societies because it's from them that not only the ancient knowledge of the fallen angels continues to live on, but it's also from them that the Roman Empire will one day return and bring forth a new emperor, the Antichrist. As always, if you've enjoyed today's content, please hit the subscribe button, rate today's episode. I'd love to hear your feedback and share this podcast with a friend. We'll see you next week.